Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. I'm Jill Weinbanks, his co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences as a Watergate prosecutor. And today I'm wearing a very special pin because You may know I'm known as the wearer of hashtag Jill's pins, and this pin says faux news because our guest today worked at one point for Fox News. Our democracy faces threats like never before. The former president continues to spout his big lie. The RNC just ousted the only two Republicans who are willing to even investigate the facts of January 6th. Republicans in Congress seem unwilling to make any compromise on important legislation like voting rights. Across the country, state legislatures are rolling back basic civil rights like reproductive freedom, counting votes cast, and more. But perhaps the most worst threat facing our democracy is the fragmented media. We've certainly talked about it on our podcast before. The disparate misinformation communicated on cable news channels only divides our country further. Is there any way the media can change? How can people with differing views talk to each other in a civil and respectful way? And today we have a wonderful guest to help us talk about those issues. Kirsten Powers is Um, someone who has had that experience. She's currently a columnist for USA Today and an on-air political analyst at CNN, where she appears regularly on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Tonight with Don Lemon, and um, the lead with Jake Tapper. She is also the author of a new book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. So that's something that, of course, we want to talk about because there are a lot of people who are driving me nuts. Um, But more importantly to our topic today is that Kirsten previously appeared regularly on Fox News as a contributor known to be liberal. During her time on Fox, the Washington Post, in an article titled A Liberal Working for Fox News, called her bright-eyed, sharp-tongued, and gamely combative, and Mediate called her Fox's liberal to be reckoned with. So we're very grateful to have you with us today, Kirsten, and thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, So let's begin maybe by learning a little bit more about your fascinating career. You were born in Alaska, and both of your parents worked as archaeologists. So that makes me wonder, how did you end up in law school and politics and news? (laughs) Um, Well, I was always interested in politics. My family was very politically minded. And so we talked about politics a lot at the dinner table. And so I and my mother actually grew up in Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside of D.C. So my grandparents were there. So we would go to D.C. And I always knew that I wanted to be in D.C. um, doing something around politics. Um, I didn't you know, it's about all I really knew. And so um, yeah, and so I ended up going to the University of Maryland, which is right by D.C., and um, graduated and um, started working eventually, like, it was, you know, I'd say after a couple years out of college, got a job in the Clinton administration as a political appointee, and that kind of started me on my uh, career path. Yeah, so I was reading a little bit more about you, and after college, you spent a year or so at Georgetown Law. I'm wondering, what was your goal when you started law school, and was it like Jill who went to I guess, get um, what she considered a better reporting job than she was offered straight out of journalism school undergrad? Well, I actually didn't go to law school until I was in my late 20s. So I first worked in the administration. And then when I was, I had been there for about four years. And I, I, I honestly, I, I did it for the credential, if I'm being totally honest. Everybody I worked with who were kind of my mentors had law degrees or um, you know, advanced degrees. And so I felt like it would be a good credential, a good education. And so I ended up, um, going to Georgetown law school and, um, about a year and a half into that, I was offered a job. I was still working while I was going to law school. Um, I was offered a job at America online, which at the time was like the hottest company in the world with the internet, which was a new thing. And they offered me kind of my dream job. Uh, running their international communications and launching their international businesses. So I was like, okay, I'll take 
I actually tried to still go to law school and do that, which was insane. <laughs> um, and so after a semester of that, I, I deferred and I always intended to going back, but then I, you know, this job was amazing. And then I moved to New York and I just, I just never went back. So I'm like the dummy who did a year and a half of law school, which if anybody knows anything about law school is the hardest part. Like once you get to a year and a half, it like starts to be easy. So yeah. It turns out you and I actually have a lot in common. My first trial was in Alaska. And after, oh, wow. and after my first year of law school, I took a leave of absence because okay. I, you know, if you're not there to be a lawyer, it's like you've just gone through the hardest year of your life spending a year in law school. Totally. And it's only yeah. motivating if you want to really be a lawyer. And I thought, oh, I'm going to just go and take whatever job I can get in journalism. Um, yeah. So I did. Yeah, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I actually, I found it fascinating. I, I was really blown away. I, I think a lot of what they teach in the first year of law school should be taught in college, if not high school. Mm -hmm. And so I really was like, wow, I can't believe I live in this country and I don't know all this. It's not <laughs> you just, know, it was just like constitutional law and stuff. I was like, it was just really interesting. Yeah. I, um, it was really hard too, but it was, yeah, it was brutal. It was a brutal year for sure. Year and a half basically. Um, but cause I was doing the night program. And so oh. I was, Oh wow! you do a year and a half. You, your first year is the same as a day student with like one less class. Wow. Which I'm just like only a 20 something could do this, um, you know, and work because today I'm like, I don't even see how this is possible. It's quite quite amazing because that, that first year is really, really hard. Brutal. But Brutal. I agree with you that the critical thinking skills you get, not just the substantive knowledge of constitutional mm -hmm. law, but mm -hmm. how to analyze, would, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if Absolutely. all of our citizens had that? And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go through um, our questions. But uh, for now, we're, we're just sort of trying to help some of our, you know, this is an intergenerational podcast where we have people my age listening and people Victor's age. Um, and so we always try to get the career path ideas and show yeah. people that one thing leads to another, but it's not linear. It can be kind of it's off not. base. And so, I mean, you've done all these weird, strange things. You were deputy assistant U.S. trade rep for public affairs, which is, again, in the communication side, but it's still, that's a pretty specific and interesting job in the administration. Um, and mm -hmm. then, of course, you were also at AOL, and uh, then it got acquired by Time Warner, and you stayed on for their foundation. And so I'm just trying to think, tell them what you think in your background gave you the experience to do those diverse jobs. Well, I think that I, well, so one thing I would say to anybody, a young person who's listening is what you said was really important because a lot of times people try to plan and <laughs> I, nothing that I did was part of the plan. Nothing. Uh, in fact, I was a journalism major in college. And by the time I graduated, I was like, I don't want to be a journalist. I want to work in politics. And, um, I, and, and then ended up going into journalism as a second, basically as a second career. Um, and so I think that you just have to kind of take the next step and you just don't know what's going to show up. So if somebody had said to me, so in my twenties, for example, there was no job. The job I do now does not, did not exist. Mm. Like there was like CNN existed, but it wasn't, you know, MSNBC didn't exist. Right. Um, Fox news didn't launch until 1998. So this whole cable news world, the internet 24 seven news did not exist. So the idea that like you would have this space for all these voices, right? I couldn't have imagined it because it didn't exist. And so, um, so I think, you know, when I went into the administration, I started as a junior person, I was a press assistant, you know, I, it was called a public affairs specialist. And I basically answered phones and faxed and, you know, did administrative stuff and helped organize press conferences and, you know, did that kind of stuff. And I just worked my way up and I learned I had an amazing boss. And so I always tell people, you know, get a job at a, a great place with an amazing job and don't worry about where you're starting. Like, you know, I was not, you know, I was very junior and, and she, and my boss mentored me and taught me and brought me along. And I just kept getting promoted and promoted until I was, you know, doing like press secretary, type stuff, working with reporters, um, doing a lot of, you know, 
traveling with my boss, who was a cabinet official. And so learning a lot from that. And that set me up to be really uniquely qualified to do this job at AOL, which was an international communications job where I had been doing communications internationally. <laughs> and so, and had a lot of, um, you know, had just had learned so much and given so much responsibility. And so, um, and so I was recruited for that job. I never applied for that job. Um, they found me and, you know, offered me the job. So yeah, it was, um, you know, and then I did that for four years. And then when I left, I went back into politics and I, you know, those communication skills transferred to working on campaigns. So I started doing that, working for the Democratic Party in New York. Um, and while I was doing that, a friend said, I think you should go on TV and, you know, talk about politics. And so she gave my name out to some people. I went on. It just It's just one thing led to another, you know, and it wasn't. And here I am. It's it's now. I worked very hard. I want to say that it's not like it's easy. I did work very hard, but still, it's you just don't know what's going to happen. Exactly, and being open to those opportunities and seeing that what you did in the past, even though it's not in a direct line with what you're going to do next, can work. And I have found that to be. Um, the best way to have a great career is to do that. I just wrote an article for the ABA Student Lawyer uh, Journal, which is called What I Wish I Had Known When I Was in Law School. And my answer was, mm-hmm. I'm glad I didn't know any of the things that everybody else is saying they wish they knew, because if I had known, I probably wouldn't have done what I did. And I just fell from one thing to another. And it all makes sense in the end. And it's been, you know, it's been great. But talking about politics and your love of politics, you did actually work um, for Andrew Cuomo in his reelection. And so talk more about that, because that was really getting directly into politics, being in a campaign like that. Yeah, I worked, well, I worked on his first governor's race. So, um, you know, and uh, I mean, this was a long time ago. Um, So, and, uh, and I, I did that. And then I worked on a mayoral race in New York city. I was living in New York city. And that's when I also started doing work for the democratic party. And honestly, I, you know, realized pretty quickly that that life was not the life for me. Um, you know, I just campaign life, you know, campaign life is for 20 somethings. It's not, and I was only like 31 or 32, but I was like, this is not for me. Um, and so I, yeah. And so I knew that I didn't want to spend you know, my career doing that. And I, and that's when I transitioned into doing TV, um, realized that I could make a career out of that. And so, um, and to be able to, you know, when I'm saying things to be speaking for myself, not speaking for other people, uh, which is what I was doing before. And so, um, but I do see how even the doing the year and a half of law school, I really feel like it helps me, um, like you're talking about with the critical thinking of being able to really analyze things very clearly, um, you know, to argue things in my columns. I think it makes me a better columnist. You know, I think that my analysis is better because I've worked in politics. So a lot of times when people are journalists who are analyzing politics, it's just like, that's just not how it works. You know, they're, they're saying things and they're making criticisms and it's like, that just simply is not how it works. And so I have experienced being there. And so I actually understand how it works. Um, and I think that that also makes me better at my job. I, I Absolutely. And that's an important lesson for our listeners to pay attention to about how you can parlay a skill in one place in a totally different environment. So, um, mm-hmm. but, but I, just because I'm personally curious, I just want to ask, I mean, you worked for Cuomo. It's a long time ago, I know. But um, you also worked with another Cuomo because you were at CNN. And so I'm just wondering if you were surprised by the allegations that came out against Governor Cuomo and about the firing of his brother from CNN. Yeah, I didn't work with Chris very much. So, I mean, I worked with him a little yeah. and I, I never had any bad experiences right. with him. And um, and with Andrew, I... Um, I don't know if I could say I was surprised. I mean, I don't, um, you know, it was, it was a difficult environment, you know, when I was working for him. So I'm mm-hmm. not surprised by the allegations of being a difficult boss and those kinds of things. Uh, I was probably a little surprised. Yeah. By the sexual harassment claims. So, 
Yeah. Um, but like I said, it was like 10 lifetimes ago. It's like, I don't really, you know, um, and, and, you know, I've changed a lot since then. And so, you know, I always was like, maybe he's changed, you know, you don't really know. It's like, you know, who were, who we were 20 years ago. I don't know, you know, has much bearing on who we are today. Uh, That's true. What about with, um, Zucker's departure? Is there anything that you can shed light on in connection with that? No, I mean, I was, it's shocking. I was shocked. It's, Mm. um, you know, he's an incredible boss, uh, just, just could not be a better boss. Everybody loves him. He's, you know, he's, he brought me to to CNN. Mm -hmm. Um, he's always been incredibly supportive. He's, you know, the reason people love him so much is that he, you know, he's very supportive, but he also, uh, is honest with you. So he doesn't, you know, tell you, Oh, I'm going to do this for you and then not do it. He just tells you what he's going to do. And if you ask for something that he doesn't think you're ready for, he says no. Um, and that's, you know, that's a great boss. And that's, and he's somebody that I feel like would have my back if something happened, which, you know, in today's world, you know, yes. we don't know who yeah. knows you're going to say something and everyone's going to come for you. Um, who's going to see you in your totality, not as just, you know, Oh, a, a liability that I need to throw overboard. Um, so those are things that are really unique, um, and a boss. So yeah, it's devastating. Interesting, uh, that he was a great boss and, um, it also, it sounds like you've had some good mentors and that's another feature. I think that younger people don't always recognize how important it is to find someone who will actually, you know, help mentor you and let you progress. Um, but you also mm-hmm. mentioned something else important, which is that you have to ask. And that's something that particularly I think women don't recognize is that you don't get things if you don't ask for them. Um, but yes. yeah, so I think these yeah, are sure. all interesting insights that will help our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I know when I went to AOL, um, from the Clinton administration and I, you know, I was 30 years old and I was like running an international communications office. I was in a little in over my head. Um, and I, but I would always think my, my boss's name, who was my mentor was Anne. And I'd be like, what would Anne do? You know, it's (laughs) like, like I had learned, I had seen her in the pressure cooker. I'd seen her under, you know, incredible pressure. Um, and so, and the fact that she, you know, didn't give me too much, like always say she was very similar and to Jeff in that way where I was, I want more or whatever. And she'd say, no, you're not ready. You know? And she brought me along at a pace that where I would learn and not step out into something before I was ready. So I'm going to turn it back over to Victor, but I just want to say we recently had uh, Jonathan Capert on the show, and he's mm-hmm. he had the same sort of, he started out as a journalism, that's what he really wanted to do, but he ended up seeing, working for Bloomberg in his um, yep. mayoral race because he knew yeah. more about New York politics from being a journalist, and he mm-hmm. knew that that would mm-hmm. be helpful. And so, and then he said, yeah, but I really like reporting. And so he went back to journalism. Yeah. But it is using the skills you get in one job in a very different way. So, um, but take it away, Victor. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think young people will really benefit from this conversation. And I just want to go back maybe to your time at Fox News. While you were a contributor at Fox News, you were um, outspokenly liberal. Um, I'm wondering why do you think Fox News hired you as a Democrat? And do you think they would hire other Democrats now? Well, I don't watch Fox at all today, but I do see the clips and I see the stories about it and stuff. And um, it's not the same place. Mm -hmm. So, no, they absolutely would not because they won't even hire or retain people who are Republicans who who criticize Trump. So they're not going to have anybody who is probably very good at arguing with them about about. Donald Trump, which is really all they really talk about. It's not, I don't even think they're having like the conversations that they used to have, mm-hmm. which would have been like a Democratic versus Republican point of view. I don't even know if that's going on. Um, so no, they wouldn't hire me today and I wouldn't work for them today. So yeah. um, I think back then they wanted to have the debates, you know, and I, and one of the things that people um, were wrong about, I would say, is the idea that they didn't. Uh, you know, what the thing was, it was harder being a Democrat there, obviously, because I was always being triple teamed, quadruple teamed, right? It was like, you just were constantly just 
hitting away, like you had to have your arguments so down in order to, um, to be able to fend that off that I think a lot of people would go on there not realizing that and they would walk away just like what just happened. I don't want to do that again. Right. And so, which is understandable, um, a normal reaction, I would say. So, so yeah. So in that way, it made me better at my job now because I had to really, I couldn't, I had to really think through the way other people think because you can't debate people well, unless you understand where they're coming from. And so it forced me when they would say things that I hadn't heard before, because I had, you know, mostly lived in a democratic bubble. Um, and I would think that's crazy. Nobody, that never happened or whatever. And then I'd go look it up and I'd be like, Oh, actually it's not totally made up. You know, this is a different point of view. And I had to kind of learn that. And so I feel like now I'm much better at my job in terms of, you know, talking to people because I had to learn all of this and had to learn how to, you know, get into the get into the thinking of how other people think, mm-hmm. and uh, which was new to me. Yeah, and New Republic uh, wrote that you held your own debate um, at Fox News and quoted columnist Eric Wemple, who called you a ferocious advocate for her point of view. And I'm wondering, just kind of talking about the career and your your career, did law school enable that, or how much did law school help you in that process of thinking through the other side's argument and, and coming uh, into the conversation with the best argument possible? Yeah, I think law school definitely helped in terms of um, probably helped more with my writing, honestly. You know, legal writing is a really rigorous class. And um, I learned a lot about, you know, argument and how to support your argument and and all of those things. I think that um, I I think that having to think about how other people think was just uh, you, you had I had to do it because the people that I was working with just thought so radically differently than anybody that I knew. Um, and so, um, and I was curious too, I think, you know, I was sort of curious when I got there and I was like, oh, I kind of like some of these people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I was like, cause I just had these ideas about Republicans or whatever, you know what I mean? And I, so I just be like, okay, now, and like I said, a lot, all the people I'm talking about are not there anymore. You know, they've all been jettisoned because they were too rational and reasonable. Um, but I, you know, I started to realize like, okay, there, it's not all crazy or misinformed. It's, there are actually different worldviews here. And, um, you know, and so it, it did help me kind of, um, think through more like why I believed what I believed. Now it made me actually more liberal, interestingly. Hmm. Um, it didn't, the more I really delved into things, it didn't, you know, I, I appreciated that people thought differently, but it didn't in any way convince me that they were right. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a a survival mechanism, basically. Like I had to understand other people. Before we leave that, I I just want to ask, because as I'm listening to you, yes, it's also very important to understand where people are coming from, but when they're coming from made up facts, when they're coming from no, uh, truth, Mm -hmm. That's what the issue is, I think, today. So I think what you're saying is... Yeah, it's very different today. Yeah, okay. I, I just yeah. wanted to clarify that, no, that you're not yeah, saying no, now I mean, that's true. It, yeah, no, back then it would be more about, like, supply-side economics versus, you know what I mean? Like, right. like what Republicans believe about the economy or, you know, what they think about health care or these kinds of issues. It wasn't, like, what actually happened. Like, it wasn't that because a lot of times, and I think Democrats and Republicans do this. They they would say, "Well, if the other side just had all the facts, they would come to another conclusion." And what I realized right. was the people I was dealing with had the same facts, and they just didn't believe the same things that I believed about the yeah. role of the government or our responsibility to other people or or whatever it was, and about how economics works. And so it was a very different. We weren't disagreeing about the facts. We were disagreeing about our world views. Now it's about the facts and that's the crazy making part. And that's the, like, I'm not going to spend my time trying to understand that, you know, it's not, um, I do spend my time as in my book, you know, trying to understand how people get to this place, certainly. And I think that that's a worthwhile endeavor because it, 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 it helps you not judge people and and kind of, you know, not take on all of their stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not, um, yeah, I'm not going to debate them. I'm not going to debate reality. 
So is it, did you get to the point that you left Fox because it had gotten to that? Yeah, I think I would have left anyway. Um, I just realized that it just wasn't a healthy environment to be arguing all the time with people um, and to be getting ganged up on. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I, uh, I sped up my departure because I was under contract. And so, as everybody is, and so I, I really wouldn't have been able to leave when I left um, had Roger Ailes not imploded. Um, so I was trying to get out of my contract. I'd been trying to get out of my contract for about a year and he, and Roger Ailes wouldn't let me out of my contract. And, and what, mm. what, what precipitated that was this crazy making, you know, alternate universe um, when Trump came on the scene and uh, started attacking Fox and Fox was trying to get back in his good graces. And so, it started to change the dynamics and the people who weren't playing along with mm -hmm. it were, you know, kind of getting less airtime and mm -hmm. it just was, it was too crazy for me. And I was like, I, I can't be here. Um, and so, but I, but I only was able to leave because Roger Ailes imploded and in the chaos, my agent went in and was like, let her out, you know? And so they let me go and I went straight to CNN. Yeah. That sounds like a lucky fortuitous circumstance for you. Um, it, it, totally and, unseen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's one of those things where life develops. And if you're ready yeah. To, yeah. to take advantage of it, you can. Um, it, it, yeah. This was all, uh, is this part of the evolution of sort of Fox News versus Fox Entertainment? And, you know, what is an entertainment versus what's news? What's the line for what's opinion? Um, you now have defamation suits against facts on the, um, you know, the side of not opinion, because opinion can be, you know, it's harder to prove yeah. uh, falsity in, in opinion. But um, it seems like maybe Fox is going to learn a lesson from some of these, you know, the Smartmatic and uh, Dominion lawsuits for being totally false. And I'm just wondering whether it, are the people there, are they driven by um, a profit motive only, or do they actually believe what they're saying? Is, is this consistent with their actual beliefs? Do they not know uh, the truth? Who, yeah. See, I don't really know because the people who are now, it's a completely different place than I was there. Yeah. So, like, the person who was my boss, my direct boss, isn't there anymore. You know, my the, my colleagues that I mostly worked with are not there anymore. Um, the entire prime time is different than when I was there. So, um, so it's impossible to know what's going on over there. I, I don't know. It just doesn't look like I, – I, I would be more inclined just as an outside observer to say that, that they're driven. Do, do I think that everything that they say that they think is true, not necessarily, but do I think there's like a meta truth there? Yes, and that's mm. that – liberals are evil hmm. and wow. that Donald Trump is our savior. And like, and I think that that's how they justify everything that they do. Well, thankfully for yourself, you don't have to deal with Tucker Carlson and all of that. You yeah. now work at CNN, which is sort of on the opposite political spectrum. I would say um, it, it gives actual facts. Um, and, and I am old enough to remember when, Democrats and Republicans did share facts and just disagreed about the policy implications of it. And you could have routinely good civil conversations with conservatives because they accepted truth. Um, and But was it whiplash for you going from Fox to CNN because you went immediately to CNN? No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, I don't, the thing was, it was the Trump era. So, it, you know, yeah. I really went into an, a not dissimilar situation. I mean, because now I had these Trump surrogates to debate. And so it was kind of the same thing happening again, unfortunately. <laughs> We've gotten away from that. And so I feel like it's, you know, a little, there's, it's, it's, you know, now that Trump is gone, I feel like it's, it's gotten a little more mm bearable. Well, I'm not yeah. sure he's actually gone, but do you think there's any way that Fox News... I mean, he's not president, so yeah. we don't have to have people on who are representing right. his point of view. Exactly. Um, right. Do you think there's any way that Fox News viewers can ever listen to CNN or CNN viewers listen to Fox or can... Is there a way to get the facts 
to the Fox viewers? I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine Fox viewers watching CNN the way it's been so demonized by yeah. Trump and now Fox News, right? Mm-hmm. So they've been convinced that it's just something that it's not. I mean, it's, um, and I mean, the whole idea even of the media being like run by a bunch of like left-wing ideologues is just laughable. Um, it's, you know, I know the surveys that show that most Democrats vote democratic, but that's very different than being ideological. And, um, I can't even honestly think of any reporters that I know that are ideological. It's not, and I'm not saying that I actually wish sometimes they were, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But they don't have opinions on these things and they're not knowledgeable about them unless it's something they cover, you know, but they're not Mm. really, it just isn't what people say that it is. It's like this idea that, you know, CNN is some hot bed of liberalism. It's just, it's ridiculous, you know? And so, Um, they're reporters for the most part. And they have people who have points of view. Like I have a point of view. I'm a political analyst. I'm allowed to have a point of view, but you know, I don't see any of that, you know? And so, yeah, it's just not what they're being told that it is. Uh, and so, um, and yeah, I don't know how you get other facts to them because they're so bought into this. I mean, and Fox has created this idea that they're the only ones that are telling the truth. Right. So, um, so people think like that's where they go to get the truth. Um, I th- you know, it's- I, th- I think this is a good transition into your book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Um, the subtitle suggests that you may have some answers about how to communicate across the political divide. So I'm wondering first, how did you deal with the extreme voices at Fox and what can it tell to our audience about how to deal with people on the Trump spectrum? Um... I don't, I think that those are different things. The people that I was dealing with at Fox on a regular basis weren't doing the things that, that we're seeing today. Um, I mean, I was working with, you know, George Will, George, Charles Crothammer, Steve Hayes, Jonah mm-hmm. Goldberg. I mean, these are not, these are conservative people, but they're not, you know, making up yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would go on with Hannity or O'Reilly and have the debates and stuff, but it's not, even that at its craziest is not what we're dealing with today. Um, you know, what we're dealing with today is, you know, are people who, you know, are, are on a spectrum and, and some people are on a spectrum where they're believing things that aren't true because Donald Trump is saying them. And some people are on the spectrum where they've gone all in on conspiracy theories, you know, QAnon, um, many people who've gone in on the conspiracy theory about the election being stolen. So, you know, I think that you, you know, you have to, one of the biggest things for me was I realized that it was just making me miserable because I was having to consume all this information. I was having to go on and debate people and I was not able to keep a emotional distance from it. And so one of the things that I found grace does, you know, I say grace creates space for other people to not be you. That doesn't mean that what they're doing is good. It doesn't mean that you're approving of what they're doing, but it is recognizing that they're doing it and not you. And you don't have to take on everything that they say. You can say, no, that's not true. And it's not okay. Um, And then go to something that's actually going to help, right? So donate to an organization, volunteer, you know, I could write a column, somebody else could write a letter to the editor, you could, you know, write something on, on, you know, inform, do informative posts on um, social media that aren't incendiary, that are just informing people that are mm-hmm. amplifying voices of experts, those kinds of things. There are things we can do that don't involve letting other people drive us insane. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of revolutionary to me to realize that I don't, you know, that I could see something and not melt down and be angry and in a rage all the time um, and, and still care. Right. It's like, and, and so we don't have to do that. Now I don't have any of these people in my family. A lot of people do. I have my sister-in-law's parents are big Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. So that would be the closest that I get to it. I see them, you know, a couple of times a year, maybe. But for people who have it in their family, then I think you're dealing with a completely different thing. And that's why I do think it's important to understand how people get to this point. Um, people want to say these people are bad people. They're evil people. These are people who have been misled. These are people who believe leaders who are telling them things that aren't true. 
They are people who have been indoctrinated for their entire lives that liberals are untrustworthy. They hate your children. They hate you. Uh, they want to destroy America. And, and, and so therefore they will only get their information from this one place. So it doesn't mean that you have to endorse it. It just means you don't have to label them as being inherently bad and evil and beyond hope because I don't think they're beyond hope. I think that, you know, if they're, a, it, you know, you're saying, how do you get facts to people? You know, it's going to have to be through relationships. It's going to have to be through, and it's not going to be through you telling somebody off and telling them how stupid they are and how brainwashed they are and all these things. It's going to have to be through empathetic listening, you know, relationships, sharing information over time, actually listening to them and those kinds of things. And, um, but it's not gonna, it's not going to be the way that frankly, I just see most people doing it, which is just telling people how horrible they are. Yeah. It's just misinformed, not horrible. And I, I know I've tried to talk to Trumpers and I lose patience faster probably than I should because we don't have a factual predicate to have a discussion on. They make mm -hmm. up facts, uh, and they yeah. may actually believe them because isn't that what propaganda is? Say it loud, say it often, and then people will be believe it. And the people speaking it is the problem because they don't believe it. They know that they're lying. They cannot possibly mm -hmm. believe the big lie about election fraud. Um, and so we now have basically toxic discourse is what you're describing in America. Mm -hmm. And it's not civil disagreements anymore. It's really shouting and feeling like you're, you're going to go crazy. Um, mm -hmm. So I, other than misinformation, what, how do we cure that? I mean, that's, that's the real issue is how do you get facts to the people who have been misled by this misinformation? I'm, I, as I said, I'm very hopeful about the defamation suit and maybe making Fox start to say truth. I'm happy that uh, Spotify is now, you know, taking off, it, the, uh, off their platform the lies of, of Rogan. Um, but it's going to take a lot more of that. What else can be done to overcome the gap in truth? I mean, it's what I just said. It's just going to be through relationships. It's not going to yeah. be through, you know, I, I doubt Fox is going to stop saying things that aren't true. They're going to wow. stop saying things that they can't get sued for, that they're going to get sued for. But I don't yeah. think they're going to stop saying things that could be passed off as an opinion, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that it's, it's more, it's going to be done by people you know, I, I write about in the book about um, deep canvassing, which is a new way of persuading voters. So regular canvassing would be you would go to in a neighborhood and you would knock on doors and they'd open the door and you'd say, hi, I'm going to read you a list of facts of why you should support the political position that I hold. Right. And it, it's not that effective. And um, deep canvassing is you have a person who goes out who. Uh, the, the two examples I use in the book, one dealt with trans rights and the other dealt with undocumented immigrant rights. And in those cases, they sent those. So a trans person goes out and with other trans people and knocks on doors and then they open the door and they say, hi, you know, there's this law that's, you know, we want to pass and um, that protects trans rights. Can we talk about that a little bit? What do you know about trans rights? And as you start a conversation and so you're not just assaulting them with facts because mm -hmm. everybody will shut down. Um, and, and then through those conversations, when the per person would say, well, I don't support trans rights. I don't even understand why we need to have them. And then the person would say, well, actually I'm trans. Um, can I tell you a little bit about my life? And then they talk about it. And what they found is that people will, will listen to your experience more than they'll listen to facts mm. because we live in a post-fact world. So, so, and, and, and it ended up, they were able to shift a lot of people's views uh, through doing this. And same thing with undocumented immigrants of people saying, well, you know, I have a parent who's an undocumented immigrant. Can I tell you a little bit about what that's like? You know, and that, that's, that's how it happens. But it does involve like empathically listening to the other person, which I think people have, you know, is very hard. Yes. And, and these activists will say it's very hard. You know, it's, it's very hard, very hard for a person to have to sit there and listen to someone say why they don't support your rights. Right. 
Um, but this is what they found really shifted people. And so I think that, you know, I have in the book a chapter on embracing healthy conflict. And so how do you get enter into conflict with people where you're talking about really serious issues? Um, you know, there's a way to do it. And, um, and I don't think to, you know, it's not beyond, when I think like it's beyond hope, I think of MLK, right? It's like, what, what could be more beyond hope than ending segregation in the South? Mm right? You know, what could be more beyond hope than, than gaining the rights that were gained through that struggle? Um, and so it's, you have to just, it's like one step at a time. Um, but it's not, it's just not going to be done by demonizing people. It's like adding more like demonization and domination to this mix is not going to make things better. Well, I hope our audience will listen or read your book and learn how to have these conversations because Obviously, it's up to us to convert mm -hmm. one at a time. Um, so if you have relatives who are members of the Trump cult, read this book and learn how to have a conversation with them to bring them back into reality. Uh, that sounds like good advice to me. And Victor, I think you have another question. Yeah, well, I, I mean, just listening to you talk about all of this, I'm wondering for young people specifically who have, I guess, seen a lot of the toxic discourse that we've been talking about on TV and elsewhere, like what would you tell them in terms of how to have civil conversations with people who they disagree with? Well, I think, I, I, you know, I, I do think you have to learn a lot. You could read my book or you can read yeah, another book. Yeah. But I do think that there, I don't think a lot of us learn how to have healthy conflict Um in our families, you either learn to have like toxic conflict, you know, where people yell and are demeaning to each other, or you grow up in a family where nobody ever says anything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, mm -hmm. there's kind of these two extremes, and there's a middle ground. And so even civility kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way, because it's, mm -hmm. it almost sounds like you can't have emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like, it's okay to get upset. It's okay to, you know, like, like you might get into this conversation and get very upset about what's being said, you know, but what you need to learn how to do is when that happens to say, hey, I'm going to take a break. You know, I'm going to go for a walk. Let's both go for a walk and come back. We're going to put some boundaries around how we're going to communicate with each other. And we're just going to agree. We're not going to name call. We're not going to yell. We're not going to be contemptuous. And if that happens, we'll stop. And so you have to, you know, and there's some people who can't do that. So there are going to be some parents or family members who, you know, just will start being toxic. They'll start being demeaning to you, saying, oh, all liberals this, all liberals that, or whatever it is. And you have to make a decision, you know, is this a person who's just not interested in healthy conflict? At which point then the boundary is we're not going to talk about this. Yeah. And like I said, go find another way to contribute to society. Mm -hmm. Um there's all sorts of things we can be doing. Um, but if you can get the person to say, look, I care about this relationship. Can we have these conversations? But these are our boundaries. Then, then I think that you, you know, you can enter into that, but you have to really recognize, like I said, also what your, your energetic boundaries are is like what your mom thinks about something is not yours. It's hers. And she's allowed to think that. And it's, it doesn't make it okay and it doesn't make it good, but like it doesn't have to destroy your day. It doesn't have to destroy your week or your year. Right. It's like, and I, when I first heard this, I couldn't get it. And now I, it just, it makes so much sense to me. And I just, basically I just know what I'm a no to. And sometimes when I see something, I'm like, I'm just a no to that. And I got to go do my yeses. Like I got to go do my stuff. that's going to make a difference. Me arguing with you and having this crazy town conversation is not going to change anything. Yeah. And, you know, and for people who want to have relationships with their families, you know, sometimes it does mean agreeing to disagree on things and to not talk about them, you know, and to enforce those boundaries. I think the best case scenario is that you can figure out the boundaries to have the conversations. That is going to mean you're going to have to listen to them, um, which can be very hard, <laughs> uh, and, you know, to hear people saying things. Um, but I think the more you can kind of get grounded into yourself and, um, and, and come into that situation in a grounded place, you'll, you'll be amazed at how you can kind of leave that over there with them and just say, okay, I know what I believe. I know what's important to me and I'm going to, I'm going to stay calm and I'm going to say that, but I'm also going to remember Rome was not built in a day. Like, don't think the first conversation you have with them 
they're going to change their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've seen this happen with friends who grew up in evangelical families who are gay, you know, watching their parents being completely opposed to eventually completely embracing. Right. So it's, um, but it wasn't, this did not happen overnight. This was something that took time. So, um, you know, and I think if you're the person who says, I don't want to take that time, you know, this is a non-negotiable for me. That's fine. Like everybody has to decide what works for them. And if you're like, you know, either they're on board now or I don't want, I won't be, you know, seeing them or in relationship with them. That's everybody's individual decision. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important point that these conversations and relationships take time. It can't just happen in one conversation or one 30 minute segment. Um, but I think that is the perfect way to end this podcast. And um, both Jill and I, we hope our audience will read your book, find more of you. On, I know you're on USA Today, so hopefully read more of your columns there. But we are so grateful to have you on with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you. I thought that was such an enlightening conversation, Victor. Did you learn a lot from that? I did. And I, and I thought the way that we ended that podcast was great because the way that she talked about being really intentional about boundaries and energy, you know, we oftentimes come across people with whom we disagree. Many people spout conspiracy theories and lies. And sometimes the best way maybe is not to engage with them and instead to find other ways to make your voice heard. And I think, um, you know, if you want to engage with them, knowing that, you know, it'll take a long time, really making that relationship something that you invest in and spend a lot of time and energy working toward. Uh, But I think, you know, finding other ways to contribute to society. She mentioned a few like posting on social media, you know, doing a social media clip every day or just, you know, simply volunteering at an organization that you care about. Those things, I think, can be a lot more beneficial in the long run. And, you know, you don't have to get crazy over one relationship. You can find other ways to contribute. Um, And I thought that was one of the most interesting things about the conversation. Um, How about you, Joe? What what did you like about that? And then how do you think we can uh, find other ways to contribute right now? So I would say there are people who are more in the middle and that it's more Uh, beneficial in terms of the use of your time to try to reach the people who you might actually be able to persuade. There are some people who are so far over the edge that I believe you'll, you'll never get them to believe the facts that you put in front of them. They won't believe their own eyes. Even when they're seeing the invasion of the Capitol, oh no, that was just, that was peaceful discourse. No, it isn't. And no one can see that and think that. But if they do and can't be changed, I would say those aren't the people it's worth spending your time on. And the other thing you can do is to make sure that you get out the vote of the people who already believe as you do. um, And that's where your time is better spent. If you vote and if you get out people of like mind to vote, who don't give up hope and say, it's just not worth it, I'm not going to do it. Yes, it's worth it. You have to do it. You have to fight at the local level. You have to fight at the national level. And maybe running for office is something you're willing to do. Maybe it's just being a poll watcher. Maybe it's just being that deep canvasser that she mentioned. Those are things that take a lot of time but are worth engaging in. And so I would say it's that's where people should be spending their time to save democracy, which is really on the edge now. I was also just going to ask you about canvassing because I know we've both canvassed before, and you know, just just for me as a young volunteer, young young organizer on a campaign, I had actually never heard of the term deep canvassing, and I think it might be a interesting way for Democrats to organize in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four, and hopefully beyond. Then, um, you know, I, I found this kind of whole conversation about, you know, you approach a conversation, maybe not on facts, but based off of just experience and opinion, and that's a better way to connect deeply with people. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard of that term, and and what do you you think of that? I hadn't heard of that term, and what I've experienced is when I've gone canvassing is I'm almost always given a list of Democrats. I'm not Mm, sent out to talk to Republicans It's to make sure that the Democrats get out the vote, which goes to my point that that is, of course, productive. Um, I had in canvassing in Iowa uh, for Hillary Clinton, there was a lot of, oh, I'm just not sure. And sometimes you have to argue, well, your choice is between Hillary and Trump. 
Who do you feel safer with? Well, Hillary. Well, then, okay, you may not love her, but that's your choice. So go and vote for her. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I love the idea of having these deeper conversations. Sometimes I got into some where um, someone I was talking to, for example, his daughter had been raped. And so he was, that was a big issue for him was, uh, reproductive freedom because his mm-hmm. daughter got mm-hmm. pregnant from that rape. Yeah. And um, so finding out what people care about, what matters to them personally is important. Yeah. It's, it's a great tactic, and people will need training to do that yes. and yes. be willing to do it. I can imagine how difficult it would be um, going to people who are opposed to trans rights and saying, mm-hmm. I'm trans. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that it works because the reason that gay marriage has been so widely accepted is because everyone now knows someone who's gay. And as a result, it's like, well, it's no big deal. I like that person. They should have the same rights. So it is getting to know people with different life experiences. I think that's great advice, and I think it's definitely something that we should get involved in. Uh, Running for office canvassing, deep canvassing, but just making sure you get out the votes of people who you already know are easy targets. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. the low-hanging fruit is ignored, and we shouldn't yeah. ignore the low-hanging fruit. But I thought it was a great conversation. I hope our audience did too, and I hope they'll be back next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. And we hope you'll subscribe wherever you follow your podcasts, whether it be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, or also on YouTube. If you want to listen to us or watch us on YouTube, you can find us there as well. And be sure to leave a five-star review and rating as that helps others find this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGen Politics.